I'm Tony Perkins, and this is More Than a Game, the podcast that takes you beyond the box score and tells the Arizona sports stories you've never heard. In our last episode, we mentioned that the U.S. Championships of Fencing are taking place in Phoenix this week. Well, that's not the only sport with a large tournament in the state in the coming days. The Professional Disc Golf Association is holding its annual Masters World Championships starting this weekend in Flagstaff. The event brings 900 professional and amateur players to town and is spread across six courses, including one new course built just for the event. More Than a Game's producer, Zach Ziegler, took a trip to that new course and got to play the front nine with two tournament organizers. He brings us this story. Bill Block has been busy lately. He's been updating courses around Flagstaff for the tournament, including here on a parcel of land behind the Little America Hotel. We've got two courses out here. One is going to be a permanent course, and that's the one we're walking to now. We call it Little America Long. And then we have a shorter course on the opposite side of the property that we call the crew course. And that one will be a temporary course. When you call it long and short, is that uh, talking about the, uh, the length of the course or is it just shorthand, easy to remember? <laughs> no, no, it's the length of the course. It, this course for the world's We'll be playing at about 9,000 feet, and we can stretch it out to 11,000 feet in distance. It will be the longest course in Arizona. It's a championship level course. The other course is only about 5,500 feet in distance, so it's more along the same lines as the rest of the courses we have in town. So I'm gonna feel real bad about how far I'm throwing then today, you're, uh, you're telling me. <laughs> No, no, there, we, we consider a lot of these holes par fours or par fives, so it's just more placement necessarily than it is distance. Bill's the tournament director for the 2023 PDGA Masters World Championship. He's walking the course today because he's a bit sore after a day of installing the baskets that we'll be throwing at. Playing this round with me is Karen Hendricks, who's the tournament's sustainability coordinator. We approach the tee on hole one. What a beautiful tee pad. She's right to notice it. Typical disc golf tees are concrete or maybe a rubber mat. Sometimes they're just clear dirt. But this one is raised and covered in artificial turf. Since we're basically the test crew for this course, Bill points us in the direction of the first basket. Yeah, we're looking at that as being pretty much a fairway. Right, so I'm... We'll see how this goes. All right. Karen tees off first, since this course isn't entirely unlike one that has been here before for an annual tournament known as the Tree Bash. Then I get my first drive on this course. Right down the middle. Yeah, nice throw. There will not be a single throw today that looks that good after that one. (laughs) While we start our walk down the fairway, I ask how Bill and Karen got into the sport. I was just looking to meet people. and I was at the park and I saw these group of people hanging out looking like they were having a good time and I, I wanted to try it. Um, I asked them about it and they showed me where, where to go because I was lost on the course and they just took me in and showed me the game um, and invited me to a league. 
I had a friend show up once and he had two Whammo 150 gram golf discs. These are probably almost the very first golf discs ever developed. And he said, well, let's go play around. And I used to work on the NAU campus and right across the street was the NAU course. We walked across the street and I started to play and I just got hooked. Flagstaff is a known spot for disc golfers. It's not uncommon to come across people on courses who are traveling and stop to play the courses while they're in town. So I asked them what sets the local courses apart. I really think it's how wooded and um, amazing our courses are. Some of them are flat and some of them have a lot of terrain and here we are at 7,000 feet and sometimes it's physically difficult. So yeah, yeah. just adds a little bit. Plus, it's Flagstaff. It's a destination spot for lots of people. People come from all over the world to come to Flagstaff and to experience all the things that we have, from the national parks to the Native American uh, monuments to the forest. We got a great community, great downtown, good beer. So with stuff like the tournaments, do you notice like an uptick in interest in them? in the last few years because you know disc golf was one of those things that people kind of decided it is a good sport to take up during the pandemic you know everybody maybe grew up throwing their frisbee at the beach and it just attracts a lot of people because they're going to identify with it and i think that the number of people who are official pdga members has grown exponentially over the last three or four years and the pandemic had a big part in that. Oh, there it is. I see it. We arrive at the basket on hole one, which sits on the edge of a hill with pine trees surrounding it. So this is a hole location that has history because it was used in both the 2003 and 2005 worlds. The actual direction of the hole is a little bit different, but this location we just thought was so pretty with these three, like probably 300, 400 year ponderosa pines sitting here bracketing the, the basket. It, it's pretty and boy, it's evil if you end up where I did right behind one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Course designers for disc golf can be sadistic. That location didn't stop Karen who sank her putt. Hey. We're not keeping score, are we? No. <laughs> Followed by my second putt attempt. Those are the, probably the first putts in these baskets. All, All right. right. Woo -hoo. Woo -hoo. Now came hole two, which includes no. <laughs> a rarity for Flagstaff, a water hazard. So I don't know if you want to play this next hole. It starts at that pad and throws over the lake. We can go look at it and you guys can decide. Yeah, yeah. You can play over to this side if you want to, you know, lay up. And this could not... be a potential disc loss. Yeah, yeah. That, that's something you don't have to worry about much uh, in Flagstaff. Yeah, this is probably the only water hole in Flagstaff. You know, I've got an old driver. I'm at least going to try it. <laughs> I've got one I don't mind losing if I mess up just in case of this. And that's exactly what happened. Ooh, Splash. That's coming back, that's going in. Oh! Ah. This is beautiful, this is such a beautiful hole. I'm gonna have to ask my boss if I can write that off as a uh, reporting <laughs> expense. And no, he said, that doesn't qualify as a business expense. 
Bill points me to an area near the water. Those two flags down there would be a drop zone. So that way you don't have to keep on tin cupping it and throwing and throwing and throwing. You can actually go down there with a penalty and have a relatively easy upshot. Give me a ball. Unbelievable. You know the scene from Tin Cup where Kevin Costner's character refuses to lay the ball up and keeps hitting it into the water hazard, only to make it on his 12th and final ball? Well, discs cost a lot more than golf balls, so I head for the drop zone. Karen avoids the water. Oh, the wind. Oh, it was close. I'm going to lose this one. Oh, no. It's in. Hey, right on the beach. Yay. That's where I like it. And we continue our game. You got a long putt. Yeah. Not awful. Our interview got a little quieter as Karen and I both began focusing on the course. Oh, if it didn't hit that branch, it was going in. <laughs> I got this one. Ooh. Almost. <laughs> Man. Bill tells me that the local disc golf association, of which both he and Karen are members, got this year's tournament by sending in a proposal to the Professional Disc Golf Association. Um, you know, whoever puts together the best proposal, who maybe has the best facilities, and for, you know, per capita, we're probably right up towards the top in the country as far as number of disc golf courses per capita. And, uh, the other part of it is that historically most of the what they call majors happen in the Midwest or the East Coast. So one of our selling points was, hey, when are we going to have something out West again? And uh, that's why we have this here. How much do you guys think the, uh, the stereotype of the disc golfer or of the Frisbee golfer is uh, we would probably see in TV? It's like golf with an incredible sadness. Like the saddest game of golf you'd ever play. Even sadder than Frisbee golf. Mwah. Not bad. Like Frisbee golf, I'm glad I tried it once. Honey, our daughter ran off with a Frisbee golfer because of some app with a really dumb, really forgettable name. And I'm here at my, my ranch here in Crawford, Texas, just, just taking a little R&R, &R, you know, relaxing, growing out my soul patch. Playing a little frisbee golf with Condi Rice and Dick Cheney. Learn to play golf. You mean golf? Golf. Frisbee golf, Jerry. Golf with a frisbee. How much do you think that holds up in comparison to uh, to the reality, especially when you're talking about the pros coming out here? Yeah. No, I think it's transitioned to be uh, a more lucrative sport. It's bringing in more money. It's bringing in sort of upping our image. So instead of all going out in, you know, cut off jeans and a tank top, people are expected to meet dress codes while they play. And we're really trying to make this a mainstream sport. The dress code is no longer uh, your, your best Grateful Dead concert wear. Yeah, especially, I mean, you walk into the Little America, you feel okay if you have a, a collared shirt on. They're, they're, pretty, they're a pretty fancy place. And there's more money coming into the sport as well. When they're paying Paul Macbeth a million dollars a year for 10 years, wow. that's, uh, it means it's more than a fly-by-night sport, it's established. Bill's referring to Macbeth's 2021 endorsement deal with disc maker Discraft. As we walk along, 
I ask Bill what the workload to create a course is like. It's quite a bit. You know, it starts off and somebody has a vision and they design, sort of sketch out how the holes are going to go and they put pin flags out, like here's the tee, here's where the basket's going to be. And we had two people do that for this course. And then you get people to just come out and throw it. You know, before you put baskets in, before you put tee pads in, you get people to throw it and you find that you're tweaking things a little bit. And then once you sort of figure out the design, then it's a whole bunch of labor. We've had work parties of 30 or 40 people out here and uh, just putting in a heck of a lot of work. Flagstaff has so many courses. What do you think it is about this area that that makes everyone like, yeah, we, we need a fifth or a sixth disc golf course in a town of 70,000. I, I think it just gradually grows and the disc golf community shows what we can do. Pretty much, we do all the maintenance on the courses, whether it's this course here, the county course at Tuthill, the city courses in Flagstaff, we, we do the maintenance for them. And I think we build this nice relationship and partnership with whoever is the landowner, whether it's private or public. And they see the growth of the sport and the number of people. When we start to have, you have to wait at every tee to throw because we have so many people on our courses, it's easy to make a case for needing another course. Along the lines of those partnerships, Karen says the city of Flagstaff and the local tourism bureau have been partners in making the tournament as environmentally friendly as possible alluding to the fact that both her and I were late to our round because of a traffic jam. We got new bicycle racks at a lot of our disc golf courses. You know, I'm sure that when people come even getting here, we kind of had a traffic jam. You know, it's a great way to get around Flagstaff. And the PDGA is also kind of supporting us with their Throw Green initiative. It's, it's just been really great to see the collaboration of folks who care about the environment and can um, do that in a way that we all make that happen in a positive way. That initiative includes telling players to pack their trash out, stay out of areas that aren't developed, and to not disturb the local animals and plants when possible. And this tournament will go a step further based on what Bill has seen in past ones. This is a story I tell everybody that really I've always been into recycling and, you know, trying to leave no trace, but I was a field marshal at this same tournament in Peoria, Illinois, and there all they had were single-use water bottles and coolers, and they didn't even have receptacles to recycle the plastic. And it, it really left a bad taste in my mouth because we can do better. So this tournament this year, every player is going to get a Nalgene that has custom stamped on it for the tournament. And we're going to have some single-use water and beverages out there, but for the most part, we're going to have igloos and really try to emphasize using their reusable water bottle and taking the water out of the igloo. We just feel like we need to be responsible that way. On these courses, though, some interaction with flora is impossible to avoid. Karen shows on a shot approaching a basket surrounded by trees. Oh, tree nide. Well, introducing me to a new portmanteau of denied and tree. But she remained positive through it. That's what's kind of nice, though, about these newer courses is you have the trees, you have the branches, and that makes it hard, you know? Yeah. I've played a few courses where they just 
plow the thing over and make it look like a, a ball golf course. And it's, it's not as much fun. But what we try to do is when we design a course is to incorporate the trees and the landscaping, the topography into the course. You know, thinking that adds to the difficulty, makes it more challenging. So that's why this basket guarded with these trees around it. So somebody might throw a perfect shot, but it hits this tree and rolls down 30 feet. And you get to chuckle. <laughs> well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're getting the putting All job. right. Yeah. With yeah, mic in hand. That's pretty good. <laughs> As we're on to the next hole, a doozy that can be stretched out to as far as 1,100 feet, a distance that's basically a round-the-world record for a drive, I asked Bill and Karen if they think long throws are more about strength or technique. I think a lot of it is technique. I've watched, you know, petite women that probably don't weigh 100 pounds can throw the disc 500 feet. Then I've watched big muscular guys will get up there and they think they're going to throw it really far and they throw it 150. I, I... Yeah, I, I'd agree. I'm still working on my form. I'm still working on my form. I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm working on my form. <laughs> I'm still working on it. It's all right. As we get to the ninth hole, Bill takes a break to rest a sore ankle and lets Karen and I finish up. All right. All right. Last. Well, hey, good game. Yeah, yeah. Here we go, last tee off. I'm guessing I'm gonna hit that tree right there, the third one. <laughs> no trees, there are no trees. <laughs> oh no. Nope, other side. <laughs> I'm gonna throw a little straight. She does notably better. Come around. Though, also clips a tree. Oh. And we have a moment of spotting the basket. And it's, it's just like yeah, opposite down the of hill. that white yeah. track, right? I think so, it's, yeah. I think so. Your guess is as good as mine. Before her next shot lines up nicely for an easy putt. Yeah. Oh, there you go, that's gonna work perfect because yeah. you're like right on the edge. So you can just look down and go, oh, there it is. <laughs> no guessing on the next one. Yeah. It's nice when you can make par. I'm not so lucky. I hit one more tree before making a gimme putt. Cool. Well, well thank you too for, for bringing me out here and uh, giving me an excuse to uh, play disc golf on the clock. Thank you too, Zach. <laughs> this has been fun. For more than a game, I'm Zach Ziegler. What's in a rivalry? Today, we dive back into the history of the border town rivalry between Nogales and Douglas High Schools. Katya Mendoza talks to former players who remember playing against each other in a championship game after a heated season. Let's take it back to the 80s, when competition between two border towns was in full swing. A few weeks ago, I talked about the historic rivalry between Nogales and Douglas High Schools. The stories have deep roots. If you remember, I introduced someone named Louis Varela. He is a former Douglas High School Bulldog who pitched in the 1981 state championship game against Nogales, going head-to-head -head with Gil Heredia. He was a self-taught tri-sport athlete in high school. 
He's also a friend of mine's dad. Back then, just didn't have club baseball or the direction that you have now, the instruction, other than watching it on TV. He played termite baseball, the Little League program in Douglas. I'm 59 years old now, but I can still remember getting the butterflies and going to Little League. We would we played for the city championship, going through high school, playing the nice thing. We were competitive in all of them, so we had some great rivalries with Nogales, Floyd Wells, Marana. CDO, we used to play CDO. Someone else I know who played in the Termite Little League was Mark Compass, my best friend's dad. As a kid, that was my favorite sport, playing uh, up and on TV as well, professionally watching. You know, back then we didn't have the Diamondbacks, so my favorite team was watching the Dodgers play. Louie played football, basketball, and baseball for all four years of high school. Mark said he also played other sports, including wrestling. He was called up to varsity his freshman year. I believe we always finished in the top two all the time uh, when I played there. And we'd always make it to the playoffs. And we had a good team uh, offensively. Pitching-wise, that was probably our, our biggest weakness. But uh, we'd make the playoffs and then make a good run for state. But we never won at all. And we normally, to my recollection, we were always competitive in all the three sports, so we would typically make playoffs. Douglas High School has made 14 championship appearances in baseball, four in football, and four in basketball. In 1978, Douglas won their seventh championship in baseball against CDO. The Dorados met the Bulldogs once more for a rematch in 1979, defeating the defending champs by one point. In 1981, things got a little tense. I think we were the number one seed to my, because I know we beat them at least a few times that year. But then we lost to them for state. The final score was 6-1, Nogales High School Apaches. It hurt, you know, to beat them in, during the season at least twice. I told him I talked to Gil for this project. And he was my competition, that him and I, I hope he told you we had some battles. Well, back then too, you used to look at the papers and yeah, he was definitely one that, you know, you, you remembered that date. And so I would just put an extra time. I remember because as a pitcher, you know, you would run, just get your legs ready, run stadiums. And I remember putting an extra time, you know, before those games. And, and again, to my recollection, I don't know what Gilbert would say, but we probably faced each other, I don't know, maybe four times. And to my knowledge, I never remember losing, but he may say a different thing, but they were very heated battles. I don't think they liked us much, and we didn't really like them much. So what really goes into a rivalry? Gil believes similar cultures and upbringings may have something to do with it. Everything just comes full circle, and when you start competing with another city that has almost the same things, that's where I think the competition comes in play. Um, I would say that they did beat us several times in football, but we also beat them sometimes in basketball or baseball. And I mean, I wouldn't say that we were obviously the dominating team because I think, I don't know the history, but while I was there, I think we were, I would think the better team as far as a baseball realm of things. I don't know if Louie's going to agree with that, but we won a state championship and they didn't. Even though he was a couple of years younger, David Oropesa says that the rivalry carried across most sports. Douglas and Nogales, my goodness, 
um, when you need to be escorted from Douglas and you need to be escorted from a different area, the fans are incredibly competitive, but at the same time, very feisty and very angry people. Um, it happened here in Nogales as well, but it, it, it was the competitiveness of both teams, both cities, and we all love to win and we were very competitive back then. And uh, it just didn't carry over to baseball. It carried to football, basketball, volleyball, whatever the sport was. But in the long run, that, that was part of baseball back then. Now we see each other and we're like the closest friends. We reminisce about the good old days and how it was, but that was just part of, part of the game. And we did not want to come out a loser against Douglas. We can come out a loser with anybody else, but not Douglas. I asked him why he thought the tension was so palpable. We always used to dominate a lot in Little League back then. And Douglas was always second place team. It was Nogales and Douglas, Nogales and Douglas for a very long time. So that carried over to our high school days. And we don't forget it and they don't forget it. But, you know, you had good friends and then you had players that were totally against each other. But now that you look at things and we look back and we see each other, wherever we run into each other, it's like, hey, David, what's up? How you doing? And remember this? And and, and it's good. It, you know, it brings good memories. The way Mark describes it, Nogales had always been Douglas's nemesis and that the rivalry began long before his time, recalling stories his dad shared with him. Back then in the 80s and 70s and 90s, I believe, we would always play against them, grow up together, even with against the the Nogales teams, we recognize each other and we'd see them as at the All-Star Games. We knew about them, who, who were the best players and vice versa, they knew us as well. But uh, it's fun when you grow up as kids with almost late in your late teenage years, uh, you're still playing baseball with the same, the same guys. Since Louis played football, he told me about a big game where they beat Nogales. My junior year, we took Reuter buses. So I remember it was a big game against Nogales at Nogales for playoff positioning or to who was going to win the conference or whatever. And we went and the stadium was, you know, filled on both sides. We were losing. And in the last minutes, we had the ball. And I think we were down like six to three. I just remember one, the, this one play that I'm um, scrambling in the back. Literally, you know, you see those commercials on TV where you see the quarterback run to the right, run to the left, just running behind, you know, the getting away from the defense. And then all of a sudden, sudden I see one of the receivers and I just chuck it up, just Hail Mary, you know, and, and this guy named Lauro Teran on our team, he could jump out of the roof. And he, uh, he leaped up, it was fourth down. I remember him catching it and keeping our drive going. And then I remember we scored, that was, that was really cool. So many memories have been exchanged, even across border towns. Some other coaches were players back then, so it's good to reminisce and, and see them and, and talk about it. So it's really nice. David and I went back and forth with a couple of players that he might have known, including Louis. I think I was a freshman, sophomore, and he was a senior, junior, senior. So yeah, Louis Varela was definitely a couple of years older than me. Like David and Gil, Louis also went on to play baseball after high school. He received a scholarship from Pima Community College, during Coach Rich Alday's tenure. Unfortunately, I hurt my arm and then just never really got any better. My freshman year, we went to the College World Series, so that was kind of cool. 
I just wish, you know, you'd wish you didn't have the injuries just so you could have played there and then maybe gone somewhere else. That that would have been my dream, but it was fun to go to the World Series. Um, even though I was hurt, I went along for the ride and, and I missed my brother's wedding too because of it. My brother said, you got to go, you know, go. So that's what I did. And we ended up losing over there, but it was a good experience. That was 1983. The Pima Aztecs lost to Middle Georgia College. I asked Louie about the moment he knew when he was going to stop playing baseball. You know, you're just like, ah, oh, I wish I wouldn't have got hurt. Just so I, not that you would have ever think about making the pros, but just to experience maybe from Pima, I could have gone to, a lot of guys went to Emporia State. Just to experience, you know, going to a different state, getting away from home, though that's, that's something that I wish I could have experienced. Mark says he also played at Coach Cheese College for a short time after high school. I think I was the only one from the from Douglas that made it to Coach's College. Maybe 10 kids tried out. None of them made it but me. Even my younger brother tried out the year after me. I asked Louie what his favorite memory was after all of these years. Just the com- camaraderie of the your friends and stuff. Like, I remember the bus rides back, especially when it was a big game you won. I mean, we'd have our boom boxes. You know, if you have the bus, so we would, some of us would get up and dance in the middle and say, okay, it's your turn, you know, because we'd be all excited about, you know, a big victory. And I think when we beat Nogales in football, they put on that, we are the champions, you know? And so you could just imagine us, all these guys, just how excited we were for the bus ride home. So, and it's different growing up in the border town because we would get home and then we'd go across the line. And it was very common and it was safe and everything. We'd go and, there was no age for drinking. So you could go across the line and your parents knew where you were. You know, it was just it was just safe back then. The camaraderie and the bus rides and, you know, getting out of practice and, you know, going to eat somewhere with your buddy or something, you know. It was just great memories. It was enjoyable back then. So you spend a lot of time outdoors and that's when cruising around and on Friday nights after the game was was popular, you know. The funnest part of was, you know, the parties, and then we had the advantage of having Mexico on the, being next to the border, so the party would just continue on till late hours, going over there to Yardas pubs and to the nightclubs. Mark and I talked about the cultural differences of growing up in a border town in comparison to how his daughters and I grew up. We all went to the same private school here in Tucson and weren't exposed to the Spanish language as much as our parents were. We didn't quite get the same small town experience. That that was my life. That was my world. I, I didn't know anything else but just living in Douglas, you know. Uh, I didn't even think about the bigger cities. I, everything was around me. That's all I knew, so... Uh, I had nothing to compare with. I, I was home, and that was my culture, and that's what influenced me, and that's what made me. I asked him why he thought baseball had such a long history amongst Latinos. I think because you don't need much. You need a ball. You need a bat. And sometimes you, you would play without a glove if you didn't have one, or, or you make a baseball out of a rock with tape or or use sticks for bats. It's whatever you had handy. I mean, obviously football, we we couldn't pick that up because you need shoulder pads, you need helmets, you need 
expensive gear to to play that sport but i think it was just easier to start a game go you find an empty sandlot somewhere and back then all the kids would get together all the time anyways you might as well just start playing baseball i don't know if how we're made contributes to because we're not the tallest people so we're not basketball players mm -hmm. I think it's like our perfect height of a game. Copper King Stadium at Douglas High School is what Mark calls one of the nicest fields in the state. I asked if he had any memories of a game that might have stuck with him. Probably my senior year when in the playoffs uh, we were uh, close to making a state run and, and losing. We came up from Douglas to Tucson and we played up here. I believe we were at Desert View High School and and just the game was so intense. It was my senior year, and if we lost, well, that was my last game. And we, we ended up losing, and, and it just that was, the, that was the end of high school baseball. I feel like I accomplished a little more than, than anybody else did, you know? Uh, just by that I could say that I played college ball. I'm satisfied with that. Louis talked about how different times were back then that Douglas was safe enough to sleep with your doors unlocked and how the town was thriving as a copper smelter site. But in the late 80s, the smelter was torn down. Suzette, Mark's wife, who also grew up in Douglas, chimed in during our interview and said that after the smelter closed, the state prison by the airport opened. Then came a Walmart that many blame for killing businesses downtown. Douglas's population shrank, just like in its rival, Nogales. Times have changed, and the rivalry looks different now. It's no secret that anti-immigration has played into that, hurting historic sister-city relationships south of the border. But stories like these remind us of the power that sports have and how the tradition of a game continues to bring generations and communities together. For more than a game, I'm Katia Mendoza. And that's it for this episode of More Than a Game. Join us next time as we conclude both our Latinos and Baseball series and season one of the show. More Than a Game is produced and mixed by Zach Ziegler. Our news director is Christopher Conover. Our logo was designed by A.C. Swedberg. Thanks to our marketing team for their help in launching this podcast. This show is part of the AZPM podcast family. You can find all of our podcasts, news, and video productions at azpm.org. I'm Tony Perkins. See you next time.